Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. If you are enjoying the show, and I hope you are, I wanted to mention our Patreon because that is the best thing that you can do to support the show if you are so inclined. Patrons get access to every podcast a week early without any of the ads. There's also members-only channels in the Discord that I am super active in. I do Q&As, I do some giveaways, and for everyone who has asked, there's also a way to have me review your music or artwork or anything else that you would like to get my eyes or ears on. Every month, I do a call for submissions on Patreon. You post your work in the comments, and then I will review it live on Twitch and then post them to YouTube for everybody on Patreon as well. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, there's a link to that in the show notes for this podcast. Mr. Shantz, welcome to the show. Thank you for making time for this. Thanks, dude. Yeah, nice to be here. Good to chat finally. Yeah. What have you been up to lately? There's a lot of questions I want to ask you about the past and how to market yourself and being a, you know illustrator and all that kind of stuff. But tell us what you've been up to lately. Uh, well, lately, lately has been a bit slow, a bit tough. Just pandemic kind of um, squashed a lot of plans that were were in the works. But I've been doing some bits and pieces here with this brand called Matar in Germany. It's uh, actually brand owned by Maddie from the band Nasty. Oh, okay. Man, th- that band is hilarious. Yeah, they're pretty great. I-, I love those dudes. But very creative. I could see how they could do really well in- with uh, a cool brand. Yeah, his brand's like very 90s UK sportswear. A lot of like track suits. Mm-hmm. A lot of gym shorts, but like him and Patty from Nasty are both like hella gym rats too. So yeah, that translates. But I also did the art for the last Nasty album. Oh, okay. Yeah, it turned out really good and they hyped it a lot. And then I started a small brand with a buddy of mine, Corey in Toronto called Strategic Cold just over pandemic. It started just because Corey and me were working together on a few little things. And he's a he works in a bunch of print shops and does printing. And we were doing stuff that just wasn't getting used. And he was like, print, so why not, right? Right. Surprisingly, it survived the whole pandemic. And we're able to, you know, use use our funds to keep the brand going and start doing some bigger things. And so it's fun. Cool. Are you still in the BC area? Yeah. Just before pandemic, I was in Montreal for about seven years. And then, well, I'm in Burnaby. So Got like it. right beside Vancouver uh, for 
two years now, I guess. Cool. Something like that. We were looking at some of your art before the stream. I was just kind of, you know, introducing everyone. A bunch of people brought up like, wow, this looks like NFT art, which it totally does. Is that something you've thought about or consider? Because I'm like, God damn it. These would make fucking killer NFTs. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I like parts of NFTs and I hate parts of it. And I've had a bunch of friends who have reached out wanting to do them and it never really came to fruition. I had a loose plan to work with this guy in the UK who's always been a big fan since like Drop Dead Days. Yeah. And we've always kind of needed a, a reason to work together. And we were talking about the idea because like I saw a couple people do it. And I, I like this aspect of NFTs where they would kind of make a blank character mm -hmm. and then build a content base and a library just full of shit. Yeah. You know, jeans, hats, eyes, faces, whatever. Right. And then you get, you buy one, but it's auto generated. Right. I like that. So I think if I was to do something with NFTs, it would probably be in that vein. Yeah. Um, I just, I like that kind of choose your own character, but also kind of like, you know, 20, like gumball machine, you get what you get. Mm -hmm. I could imagine like, you know, your monsters or something like that, like a million different combinations of those. I think you should do it. If you don't do it, somebody else is going to do something like it and you're going to be pissed that you weren't the one that made all the money. Oh yeah, I do. That, that's happened more times than I can count. Yeah. Or I just didn't jump on it. You mentioned Drop Dead. I know a lot of people are going to want to hear about that. So tell us about that, how that happened and kind of what it was like to be part of that at that time. And for anybody who's not familiar, Drop Dead was started by Ollie from Breathing the Horizon in what, 2007 or something like that? I think he started it maybe a bit sooner, but it kind of blew up around then. Yeah. Got it. Tell us where you came into that. I think it was around 2007. I started doing merch and stuff a little bit more. Like that was kind of the start of my career, to be honest. Like that whole drop dead thing started like right at the start, which is a little bit bizarre to me still to this day, because it's like, that's what I'm known for by a lot of people. I have a lot of fans now who find out later. Like they find my art through however, and then realize it later. And they're like, holy shit. Like I had your shirt when I was 12 and like clients too, they'll do the same thing. I'll get a random email and they'll just be like, oh, and freak right out. But yeah, 2007, I was doing merch and I met Jamie Hope from the Red Shore. Can't remember how the hell we connected, but we connected and he was wanting some merch for, for the Red Shore's tour with Bring Me the Horizon. And we were kind of getting to talking and he was like you know the metal merch scene is just like the same shit all the time and he's like i love your like weird style like just do whatever you want and we're gonna print it so that was when i did that i got them doing like all kinds of crazy color shirts instead of just doing all black and one of the best ones i think that sold was a purple shirt with this bright green three-headed zombie eating tacos mm -hmm. sounds like 2007 yeah yeah like perfectly yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh and ollie saw it when he was on tour with them and he bought one and i found out later he actually ended up buying like 20 or 30 because it was the only shirt he wore he was going ham in the pit back then and like it just kept getting ripped torn stolen so he just kept buying those and then I think eh, it was probably early 2008 that he had messaged me and we started talking and that was when I, I was still working from home. And so I did the kitty brains, the mummy. So this is just like through MySpace or something. It probably was, to be honest. That sounds about right. That was definitely MySpace. Was it uh, Nexopia Vampire Freak <laughs> era? 
Yeah, vampire freaks. That's right. And that, but and then you ended up living over there for a while, right? Yeah. So I did. So I did that that first line of stuff, and they got it printed. They did full lookbook and and photo shoot for it and everything. And was it that? Yeah, I think it had to be that one. So I think it was right after I finished that. Ollie basically was like, "Hey, we definitely want to do more, but I want to have you here. Do you want to move?" And so I moved with my ex, my girlfriend at the time. And I got her a job with the company too. Cause I was just like, you know, do you have some random shit job for her? And yeah, that didn't go well, but anyways, <laughs> go figure. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up going and she ended up getting a job at their first shop as manager. So go figure. Yeah. So I moved there, moved to Sheffield. Ollie was on tour when I got there and I can't remember what album they were touring. Cause they were right when I got there or when he came back from tour, they, I think they were just finishing suicide season. Maybe. Yeah, probably. I think it was probably around that. I got there. All he was on tour. I actually lived with his parents. Oh, wow. For the first two months, I think it's kind of a long time to live with someone's parents. They're really rad. I got to say, like I, I ended up staying in touch with his parents more than him after I left because we got along really well. I used to go get shit faced with his dad and okay. they're really fun. His mom was an art, a bit of an artist. And I think she has like a, a paint company now or some oh, okay. crazy shit. And his dad was like an underwater Navy welder. So he's just this gruff English guy. Right, right. So what was it like to kind of have, I don't know if you call it an office job exactly, but that's kind of like getting thrown into the deep end really fast. Yeah, I didn't I didn't mind it though, to be honest. They were working out of like a car park storage unit and they had like rented out like half the building basically. Like every time they got bigger, they just rented out another section of the building. And it was just outside of Sheffield. It was actually in like Ollie's hometown, which was like a small village basically. So that was a little weird because it's like I lived in Sheffield. I ended up getting an apart of actually a huge loft right next door to Ollie. So I'd go hang out at his place all the time. He'd come over and the work thing, it was, yeah, it was like an office. And at first it was really small and I got kind of annoyed because about a month after I got there, the girlfriend at the time split because she said I was too depressed because my parents had split just before I left. Oh man, that's rough. Real nice. And I had to work across from her every day. And it took about two or three months before I think they ended up renting another space. And then I got an office with, can't remember who it was, but one of the kids that was working there doing like a bit of design stuff and online. And, and it was cool. Like I just went in, uh, I had like my laptop and my tablet. I just worked on shit and watched Polly Shore movies, basically. Could be worse. Yeah. Like, cause I had two computers and one of them I used to draw and one I just watched movies on. Yeah, it was good. The only thing was like, I work still, I work really fast. Yes. I would just get stuff done. And then I'd kind of be at a loss because there was like nothing else to do. And everyone else had to do their shit before we could get going. So I would end up designing stuff for the next season, a bunch of mock-ups. You know, I just kind of kept myself busy. But the problem ended up being that for me, at least, is that everybody that worked there was Ollie's best friends or family. So when I got there, I was told by his mom, and she was like, hey, listen, so are you OK with the idea that like a lot of stuff's not getting done, not getting done on time? Things just aren't getting really like the process isn't working really well. Would you want to help, you know, maybe streamline some of that, get things going? I'm like, for sure. But I'm going to have to be like a dick. Be the bad guy to these people that he's friends with. Yeah. And so, you know, everyone was kind of sucking at his dick being like, 
well, he's the greatest. How could you say anything bad ever? And I loved the band at the time and I liked Ollie and I loved the brand, but I'm not really the type to fanboy out and like be a doormat. That's a tough position to be in at any company, regardless of like the person who's got to come in and be the bad cop and like, all right, guys, party's over. We got to act like a real company now. That's that's tough. People are not going to like that. Yeah, no, not at all. And it took its toll really fast. Another thing was that I've kind of thought about it over the years and tried to figure it out as to why, but like we all had shit in common. We all worked at the brand. We all liked the same music. Like his circle of friends was like, you know, they all lived in the same building. So like you put it together, it's like everything should have been fine on like a social level. But I got there and I think it might have been because work, but I got a little bit X'd out of the the crew. Right. And then after the girlfriend had left, I was kind of just like left to my own devices. And I ended up meeting some other people outside of their circle, which is great. I'm still friends with them to this day. But yeah, I didn't really get like brought out to stuff. And I think a big part of it too, and this isn't news to anybody, but they did a lot of fucking drugs. Right. I remember the day Ollie got back and he was like, came over to my place and was like, hey, we're going to have, you know, pre-party at at my place and we're going to go out. And I was like, yeah, Brad, I'm coming over. I come over and it's just like, so this was 2009. So a lot of ketamine and Coke. Right. And I didn't do that shit then. I ended up doing it years later. (laughs) But I didn't do it then. I just smoked a lot of weed and drank myself stupid. I think because I wasn't into it and I wasn't partying the same, that kind of ended up putting a damper on a lot of things as well. I do remember though, and it was to this day, it's hilarious to me. But the first night when we went out that night, Ollie and his roommate did so much ketamine and coke that they basically like turned into robots. Like they're just like, like gone. That seems like quite a combo too to pair those two things together. It was wild. Like I, I was even like, wow, this is this is a bit nuts. Yeah. But like everyone, everyone knows. Like I'm not, I'm not saying anything. People, fans don't already yeah, know. Yeah, but, yeah. And you know, all the more to them if they want to. I'm not judging them on that. But their actions, as far as you know, everything else was a bit sus. Yeah. But I do remember carrying Ollie home because I lived next door and tucking him in, <laughs> and then him kind of coming to. And just projectile vomiting across his bed. <laughs> Sounds like a shirt. Oh, it was so good. Yeah. <laughs> I should have done a shirt of it. And I looked over and he was dating this model girl at the time. And she's sitting down there on her phone. And I was like, hey, do you want to come up and take care of this? And she's like, no, you got you no. got this. You're good. Yeah. I was like, I think I like patted him on the head. I'm like, I'm going home. Yeah. Like, fuck this. But as far as the brand, it was good. I stayed for that season. I did a pile of stuff. I did the lookbook, which is like, I don't know how many people actually have that still, but I did a full print lookbook, like printed lookbook ads, tons of branding, a lot of stuff that ended up getting used at the flagship store. You know, for a lot of those reasons, I ended up leaving. I think that was part of the problem too, is that I saw this as a pretty big opportunity at the time because I hadn't done shit all. You know, this was the start of my career and I was like making real good money. Like my apartment was baller. Like I was the most baller I've ever lived. And I look back and I remember like my rent was stupid. And when I'd get my paycheck, like I didn't even see like the rent taken off. Like I, I was, it was great, but I looked at it and I was like, you know what? Money is great and all. And like, yeah, I could like suck it up and just like take the, you know, shit and maybe stay with the brand and, you know, be rich. But my integrity was just a little bit too like, no. Well, there's so much of that in music and, and apparel and fashion stuff in general of these 
situations where when you're part of something successful, lots of times that also, and I'm not, you know, talking shit on them in particular or anything, but just, it's so common that like you're on this rocket ship, but everyone involved with it is a super dysfunctional fuck up and you're miserable. And it's like, well, I feel like I have the choice of like, stay on this rocket ship that is probably going to crash into the moon or at least make me crash into the moon or get off. And I don't like either of those things. No, that's it. Exactly. It's you nailed it. The thing was, it's like, I tried to keep it professional. So I tried to, you know, when I wanted to go, I talked to everybody and was like, you know, I still want to work for the brand. I still want to do stuff, but I just, I don't feel I can do it here at least for like a while. You know, I thought about potentially going back years later. I had asked if like I could come back and nothing ever really lined up. And then we kind of lost touch for like 10 years. And when I was in Montreal, I I don't know, I want to say like four, maybe five years ago now, we touched base again and he had, you know, stopped doing drugs, stopped drinking. He was in really good shape. He was trying to get his, you know, everything really like sorted out and, and, you know, put a lot of the past in the past. We had a good chat for a minute. We were laughing at the fact that we were both on the same path and we both had black tattooed arms. Even (laughs) we were like, really? Like both like went this way and then ended up exactly the same place. Yeah. Like so, so strange. And I ended up doing, they did the, the, like they brought back and reprinted some of the old classics. And then he got me to do a handful of new designs that were in the style of that, but it didn't really end up getting hyped as much as they hyped a lot of the other lines that they've been dropping. And I'm guessing it's the classic, like it didn't do, it didn't do well, but it also didn't get hype. And so then it was yeah, like, right, right. so then it's like, you know, it gets put on me like, well, you know, your designs don't do well. It's like, well, your fans are constantly asking for it in every right. comment on every picture. Like it <laughs> right. for 12 years, like I'm pretty sure <laughs> right. someone wants this shit. Yeah. But it was fun. You know, I, I look back and, you know, there was a lot of negative shit and a lot of heavy, heavy stuff going on in that time. But I also met all the guys from Architects and we became really good friends for for a bunch of years. We lost touch for whatever reason, but I did all their classic like dinosaur merch. That was like mm-hmm. a big fan favorite. Um, what the hell were some of the other bands? I don't know. A lot of a lot of UK hardcore and metal stuff I ended up doing doing a lot for. And uh, and then the funniest of all of the connections I made there was during, I want to say 2008 or nine. Oh, it would have been when I was there. So yeah, 2008, we went to London for the Krang Awards and we were at the after party and all, all of their crew was, I don't know where they went. And I'm standing there and my, I'm watching my ex, like, you know, hit on dudes and get shit face. And I'm like, cool. And I look over and there's one other dude there that pretty much had the same face. And he's just like, like this fucking sucks. <laughs> and it was Steve Rye from Mindless Self-Indulgence. And okay. so I just walked up to him. I was like, this sucks. And he's like, yup. And he's like, want to <laughs> get chip faced on the roof? I was like, yup. And he just walked behind the bar and grabbed a big bottle of Yag and we went up on the roof. And then we stayed friends for years and I ended up doing the art for their side project, The Left Rights. I did the, the art for the second album, which was great because I was such a huge fan of that band. And like the weirdness that they they did and doubly so it was pretty epic in the sense that the only other artist they ever really worked with was Johan Vasquez, who did Invader Zim and Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, right. who to me is like, you know, absolute legend. So to get to do art 
for someone where where that's the only other person they work with, that was pretty cool too. Yeah, I mean, I, I would put you in the same tier, but I get what you're saying. Well, thanks. But let's <laughs> let's talk about a little bit about that though, because you know, you I would say like you and Mike Cortada were the two guys of that era. Uh, I'm very happy to say that I've gotten to work with both of you guys for on shirts and stuff over the years, which made me really happy since I've been such a fan of both your work for so long. You know, that's a style that obviously was super cool for a while and then it was super uncool, but now people appreciate it again. You know what I mean? Because everyone all of a sudden started doing all those like black and gray. Like you remember like 20, 2014, it's like everyone got serious overnight. It was tough. Yeah, but you didn't change your style. You kept doing your thing, which I really respect because, you know, there are other people and and I get it. It's business. You know, sometimes you got to change your style with the times, but your style is, has, I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to say it's the same. You evolve, but you've never like yeah. had one of those points in your career, like, oh, he used to do this. Now he does that. Um, even when it wasn't cool. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's it's a hundred percent accurate. You're you're dead on. It's what what sort of keeps you to you know stick to the path no matter what. This isn't the first time I've thought of it, and it's not the first time I've talked about it. But every time I talk about it, it's you know a couple of years later, and my mind's changed on why. But there was a lot of times where when that style was really big, my style was getting ripped hard. Yeah, like I was right. I was in. I don't know when it was, but there, there was an article written in AP magazine around that to the probably 2009, 2010 or 11, maybe kind of post scene kid monster vibes. And they, yeah. they had a list of the most, I guess, I don't know how they figured it out, but the most ripped off artists from that era. And I was on it and I was laughing because they didn't reach out to me, which I thought was odd, but I came across it and was like, yeah, it's accurate. <laughs> yeah. But every time it happened, so I didn't really like, I'd get bummed out because there's a lot of stuff. There was a lot of times where people would just like rip my vibes and, and then get like more hype from it when it was yeah. just a direct rip. And I had my moments of being like, this sucks. But for the most part, I would look at it and go, well, you know, this is just an opportunity to evolve. You know, this is an opportunity to, you know, find, find other inspirations find other, you know, stuff that inspires me, you know, and kind of like dive into another aspect of my art and kind of go that direction. But the thing is, it's like my art's my art. Like whether I do something like a little bit more real, like those trailer park boys mm -hmm. portraits, which, you know, or like super goofy ass pizza monster, like I did for you. It's like, you still mm -hmm. know it's, it's my work. And so I think that allowed me to kind of go through all those changes and what's cool or what's popular, or even just like changing when I was like, you know, change genres that I would look for work, you know, like now I've, you know, done stuff for like Sean Barrett and little Aaron smart death, you know, Oh, cool. I, I did didn't know that. Yeah. I did some stuff for has heart, which is Aaron's brand. Mm -hmm. I did a pile of merch for, for smart deaths and, uh, and, you know, Sean Barrett, he's huge at this point and he works with all kinds of great people. And, you know, I, we definitely became just, I only did one design and some, some text for him, but we connected just through, I guess, going through a lot of the same shit in that, in the scene and, you know, right. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, You can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use HyperFollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. I feel like if you're someone who, you know, an artist of any kind, whether it's visual art or music or whatever, that has sort of a signature style, there's going to be that period in your career where you're not cool, you know, where the trends are against you. Like think of a band like Newfound Glory, for example. Yeah. Yeah. They've, they've never changed. They've, I mean, they've, you know, changed a little bit, but like they've never done a 180 and they didn't start doing dubstep or whatever, you know. And <laughs> true. And there was yeah. a time where nobody gave a fuck about New Funk Glory. Oh yeah. And that kind of pop punk was corny and uncool and blah blah blah. And that was probably real shitty for them. Oh yeah. They kept at it. And then, you know, people got a little bit older and looked back and like, actually that shit was fucking cool. Then they became seen, you know, legends. 
And, you know, I feel like uh, it's kind of the upside. It's the double-edged sword of having a really like iconic sort of style is like that there's going to be times where the trends are against you. And as tempting as it is to change, like, I think that's ultimately what people don't respect is if they see, you know, like every band that did a dubstep album, you know, in 2011 or whatever, and you roll your eyes. With that being said, as much as you've been ripped off, I still don't think anybody has been able to do what you do. I mean, even with this style that is a well-known style, your version of it is specifically yours and nobody else can do it. And even just down to like, I mean, cause I've seen your PSDs that you send me, like just like the, the line quality, you know, cause I did graffiti and shit for years. I was a t-shirt designer for years. So I, yeah. you know, I'm not as good as you are, but I, I know a little bit about these things. I mean, even just like the line quality, I can tell from looking at it that it's yours. Nice. What are the specific things that you think make your style yours that other people aren't able to copy? There's like a handful of things that like when people have talked about my work, like even my friends and stuff, because I've asked that same question too. I'm like, what makes my my style mine? And there's always the like, you know, it's like everyone's eyes look like they're having allergic reactions or like, (laughs) Uh you know, or like your mouths all look like this or when you draw realistic characters, they all look like you. But the thing is, it's like it's those things like that people try and copy. And I think you nailed it. It's the line weight. Yes. The contrast of like line weight is a big one. And it's fucking, it's so fucking hard. If anybody has like tried drawing with a tablet sometime, it is so much fucking harder than drawing with a pencil. People think it's easier. It's harder. Like the way that you taper your lines is so fucking hard to do. Yeah. And it took me a while because like you look at my stuff from like 2008 and like I didn't even really... I don't think the option to even have a level of taper to the pressure sensitivity of your pen. I don't think that was even a thing or it was just bad because all my lines it was like, bad. Yeah. Yeah. Like my lines were like thick and thin, but it was like thick and thin. <laughs> right. And like now I can kind of now I'm, I'm really able to go into more because like one of my big influences is like Japanese woodblock prints. I love the line weight. Like you look at those mm-hmm. and you'll look at the face and they'll be you know, super nice, slender little lines for yeah. noses and eyes. But then the rope will be these big, bold, fucking fat, fat yeah. lines. And it's the same with like Japanese, classic Japanese tattoos. That was definitely a big influence. And now with just like the way that, you know, programs are set up and like, I've been trying to use Procreate a lot more because I finally got a, an iPad, traded a design for an iPad. And so I, I can do that even more in that. But even that took a bit to get, you know, get used to. And so I feel it's that. I think the problem is when someone tries to rip my style, like I said, they do the classics, but then they don't really know how to draw anything else. So exactly. They, so they yeah. just draw the rest horrible and then add add my eyes or add back then add a flip brim and some weird shoes. And <laughs> right. But but like yeah, it's the, like you get the obvious the obvious parts. That's not what makes it what it is. Yeah. You know, anybody can copy the flipped up hat. That's easy to do. But it's, it's just that hand it's the same with guitar they say tone is in the hands yeah like i have literally played john petrucci from dream theater's guitar i've picked it up and played it guess what it sounded like me not john (laughs) of course yeah people don't want to hear that but but it's true your work kind of reminds me that way of uh jack davis who's probably like my favorite illustrator of all time like you look at those old ec comics guys that drew with a brush and just the way that they feather those lines it's just like the level of craft there just blows like how many fucking how many fucking lines did they draw 
Oh yeah. To be able to just feather the, and they would draw a page a day, Yeah, you know, to be able to feather those lines like that. And I guess, I guess that's what to me I see in your work is that although it is digital, uh, it has that kind of level of analog craftsmanship that a lot of people don't think they need because it's digital. It might be as simple as this. We're the, like the last of an era that grew up knowing life before the internet. Yeah. Knowing life before digital. And even when I was in university, you wouldn't think, but like, I didn't do any digital drawing. I didn't use, I never even learned how to use a tablet in university. And like the option was there. I remember there was like a digital something course. Yeah. Never touched it. I didn't, I didn't actually start using an iPad or a tablet till three, four years later. I got a job with, did you ever, I don't know if you guys had it in the state or maybe that was in the States. There was this company, this shop called Bang On. No. And they did, it was in the mall, it was in malls a lot. And they had a lot, like they had. It's a very Canadian name. Yeah. But they had them like at their peak, they, there was like 40, 50 shops and they were like worldwide. And then they just fucking crashed. Was it like a Zoomies type thing or something? So basically you'd go into the store and it was full of blanks of every color, every type of shirt, joggers, whatever. And you'd get iron on transfers and they'd have text in like a a pile of different fonts. They'd have just books of designs and you would Mm. pick and, and place it where you want. And you could, you know, even cut one in half and put so it was like kind of diy oh man it seems like you could do some wild shit with that i had tons i went there even before i end up working there so the i don't know i think there's one open but you go through and you see there's tons of these old illustrations that were from me and i remember they were like well can you draw on this tablet everything we do is digital oh yeah not a problem i had never used one My, my first day I sat there trying to figure out how to draw a straight line and a circle. So I was like, it's so hard. Yeah. But the, but my point being was because we grew up before digital and before internet, like, yeah, I work mainly digital, but like I, I paint and my style like that, that's one of my paintings. Like my, it's still my style. Yeah, exactly. You can see there's certain, you know, the way the colors are blended, I can tell that's paint, but like the line weight and that's still your style. Yeah. And that, and I think that might be as easy as it is to answer that with this, this answer, but maybe it is as simple as that. It's the fact that I grew up with markers and pencils and, you know, my mom and dad are artists. My brother's an artist. Like it was a whole family of artists. So like we were always drawing, you know, whether we were watching TV and my dad got out all the markers and we'd like draw tattoos on each other, or we'd have, you know, all of us had stacks of sketchbooks. And so when I started doing digital, I remember saying to myself being like, at some point, I want to be able to do a digital piece that looks like my paintings. And then it got to the point where it switched. And I was doing so much digital work that I ended up working with like, like art crews, like on mass in, in Montreal, where I'd go do live paintings and murals and, and we do big commission, like murals for, for whoever. And I was like, well, I want my paintings to look like my digital work. And so they just kind of kept going back and forth and, and influencing each other to the point where now it's, you know, I think that's what you're saying. It's like the line weight looks painterly or it looks natural, even though it's digital. So maybe it's that, maybe it's just the, you know, the knowledge, the history, being in an artist family, you know, things that maybe when I'm drawing, I don't really like have in mind, but they 
they definitely became like, you know, a big influence on how my work looks and how I think about doing a piece. I probably sound like an old man, but I think there's so much value to like doing things analog and doing them the hard way. For example, like when I went to school for design, yeah, the first year they didn't let us touch a computer for anything. So we had to do things like paint gray squares going from white to black yeah. and like 12 steps in between. And you had to mix the paint by hand. Yeah. I had to do that. Yeah. And I fucking hated it at the time. It was so annoying. But in hindsight, it was great because it really makes you and then you would hold yours up next to everyone else's and you'd see how wildly they differently were. Oh, yeah. And you realize, yeah. oh, actually, just like the act of having to like uh, train your eye to perceive the differences in gray and then, you know, mix it and like just to to be familiar with color at such a like intimate level. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't I just don't think there's any substitute for that. One thing I found that kind of went with trends in design, in merch, in art, is that one of the things that became part of the trend was colors, too. Mm -hmm. But the thing was, is that like colors would be trending in like, you know, in fashion or like a new Jordan would come out. And then all of a sudden you'd see a pile of merch that was just matching those things. Right. But you could tell they didn't know color theory. Yeah. They didn't know what color to do the design to make it look good on a shirt. You know, they didn't know any of that shit. Like, are you just picked a pink and a magenta? You don't understand why it's that pink and that magenta. And there's a little bit too much yellow in the magenta because you don't understand. Yeah, 100%. And that shit totally matters. Yeah, it fully does. Because I early on, I remember like one of the things I would get from a lot of clients was that like, they're like, oh my God, like I would never have thought of that, that color combo. Or like, I would say like, hey, here's this, here's the colorway I thought looked best for this design we're doing. I really think you should probably do it on this or this shirt. And they're like, well, yeah, but, yeah. but black shirt sells. I'm like, spend the money, do a black shirt and do it on whatever other color that I knew the design was going to like just pop. Right. And when they would, and they actually took the advice, you know, yeah, it would, it would get hype. And you learn that from doing all those stupid studies where you have to paint green squares on eight different colors of paper. And then you put them up on the wall and you're like, oh. That green square looks totally different on orange compared to light gray or whatever. Oh, yeah. I remember like, you know, learning color theory in, in advanced painting in university and like having, you know, having the actual physical color wheel and you could see yeah. you could like turn it and be like, OK, if I'm doing this green with this amount of saturation, but it's a little lighter. OK, the best, you know, colors, you know, the right. contrast color, the best, you know, colors that go like. You, you knew that stuff and you had to know that stuff. And yeah, like putting, like bringing that into a digital realm and knowing that, you know, whether I knew it or not, because it was just stuff I learned in school, right? And stuff I learned from my, my parents when I was doing art growing up. But yeah, it definitely looking back now, I, I can, well, even to this day, it's, it's definitely something where when I'm coloring stuff, I'm like really focused on those things. And it does set you apart. You know, I've noticed that color is a weak point for a lot of people, a lot of oh, artists. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. And I, I don't, I'm not sure why it's hard. I guess it comes naturally to me or, well, I also did printing from the time I like offset printing from the time I was like 15 to like 23. So I spent thousands and thousands and thousands of fucking hours trying to match arbitrary colors on different kinds of paper and shit. So I suppose I probably learned a little bit from that. Yeah, <laughs> maybe a little bit. <laughs> I guess maybe I take that for granted, but you know, or even like, and just, there's just so much value in doing analog things, which probably makes me sound like a boomer, but you know, I also did graffiti, which yeah. is another thing. Cause 
you know, graffiti being, uh, you know, if you want to like that painting behind you to like taper that line, you have to paint the pink over the black, right? Like just learning how to think of like cutting the lines in like what order the layers are and stuff like that. Oh you know, yeah. It, it's that sort of thing that you learn from analog. And I don't know exactly how that makes digital art better, but I know that it does. Well, I found like a lot, like recently now using Procreate and having like a lot of paint brushes and stuff. Like I'm really trying to explore like paint, like really painting, mm-hmm. but digital. And cause I was doing it a lot with Photoshop, but it was like a, it was a whole different technique and it was still really digital based and really like cutting corners and weird shortcuts and yeah. weird layers. Cutting corners. That's the, that's the problem. Yeah. And I still use Photoshop for a lot. Like I can't really do logo design on Procreate. There's something about the line weight that just, I haven't quite got the grasp on as far mm-hmm. as getting lettering and logos looking the same as if I do it on my Wacom, but their paint brushes are incredible. This one that I've been trying to use, like as you're painting with it you're watching like because you see the little ghosted yeah thing and it spins as you're drawing so that you're never getting like the same paint stroke which you would with paint so there's a lot of these analog like someone that knew how to paint went and made these brushes and the way the watercolor behave i don't know if it's procreate or one of the other ones i used but like the way that watercolor behaved was like shockingly real Oh my God. There's a few, I haven't got them yet, but I've been looking at brushes. I'm just waiting to have some money to splurge on like a pile of those brushes. Cause I tried a bunch of the free ones and they're, it's obvious why they're free to go to the color thing. Like you were saying, like, yeah, like now I find myself, you know, I'll be doing painting in there and I'll put down, you know, my, my background color as like hot pink or orange yeah. or, or whatever. Because like, yeah, like you, it's the same with painting. It's like, if you do a certain color underneath and then you're, you're painting over with, with other colors, you're going to get a completely different warmth or tone or depth or whatever. than if you just had a white, you know, white, uh, background or a white canvas. And so I find myself, you know, going back to some of these things and like, same with like exactly what you're saying, like the analog, like, like I love photography. And I can take a really good photo, but I never fully got into becoming a photographer. Right. But I always had really good friends. I seem to just like cling to or become best friends with photographers. Maybe because I like having my picture taken too. And I'm egotistical yeah. like that. So it's a good, good friend to have. Yeah. I like, I like my face. So I want to see it in pictures. Yeah. But when I started learning in university, I took, took photography and it was it was definitely pre-digital. Like there was digital cameras out, but like yeah. They were not they weren't a substitute for film. Exactly. Back then. It wasn't a substitute yet. You couldn't get the same thing yet. And so when I took photography, I had a 35 mil Minolta. We had to, you know, go out and actually shoot. I had to know my, you know, F stops and my depth and my lighting. And we had to go into the dark room and develop it. And we had to know like. You know, now you can just go to levels and fuck with your level. But I had to sit there and I had to do three, four hours of developing just to see, you know, and you know, those steps and you're like, well, this isn't going to be dark enough. My blacks aren't black. And you had to know what camp like, right. You had to put in the work. You had to, you actually had to know what you were doing, not just shortcuts. Right. 
So for anybody who's watching or listening to this, uh, there's a couple of people on the chat who are, are saying like, you know, that they want to save up and buy this program or that program. My, my advice, and I would like to know what you think, my advice would be, don't worry about buying the program. Just go get a piece of paper and a pencil. I can't agree more, honestly. Uh, or, or if you want to really fuck with digital and you're like, oh, I, don't, I don't want paper and pencil. I just, you know, it's not going to relate or, you know, for the people that really want to do digital. And I've said this for years in different ways. It's great to have inspirations. It's great to have a favorite artist, but don't learn to draw by only copying them. Because like I copied tons of shit, like in high school, like I was drawing, you know, redrawing Joe Magera comics and Adam and there's a place for that. For sure. And like, you're going to learn, like if you love the way, like I loved the way Joe Mad drew hands. To this day, the way I draw fingertips is because of him. 100%. I love the way like you would, like you could get this real nice flow and have this super effeminate hand, but like he would still draw like knuckles and have right, right. like, you know, and I just meaty, fucking loved it. Meaty knuckles. Yeah, it was great. I love a good meaty knuckle. <laughs> <laughs> but I never would have learned any of that shit if I hadn't just traced over my my favorite artist but i didn't focus on just one favorite artist i was like i said i was drawing you know i was using japanese woodblock prints i was looking at tim burton sketches and johnny the homicidal maniac and like just endless amounts of stuff and i would pick bits and pieces and be like i love the way they do that or i love the colors from this but the big picture is like just fuck around like yeah whether it's paint in a canvas or spray paint, or markers, or all of them together. Yeah, I'd say just don't worry about getting the expensive-ass program until you're at a yeah. point where you're looking at your art being like, I really feel like I've I've dived into this enough, I've built it up, and now I'm really ready and confident in my work to pay money to get this program. Because it's not the program's not going to help you. If you suck. It's not going to make you better. You suck. It's not yeah. going to, like, uh, yeah, I, I wish... Just like playing John Petrucci's guitar, maybe I sounded 1% better. Maybe. Exactly. You could get the but most expensive-ass equipment in, in anything. You could get the greatest, well, I guess with a camera, it's like if you get a real good camera, <laughs> chances are it's going to take a good photo for you. But a great photographer with an iPhone 4 will take a better picture than I would with a $50,000 Hasselblad. Exactly. Exactly. You still got to know Every day what week. you're doing. You still got to have yeah. an eye for it. And one of my teachers in university in advanced drawing, which was funny because he was an old guy when I got him and he was actually advanced drawing teacher or professor when my mom went to school. So we both had him. And I remember my mom telling me this quote and then I had him and I, and I heard it. And I remember being in class being like, Oh, and he looked at me and I was like, Oh no, just my mom said this growing up all the time. It was you and hearing it from your mouth. But he said, he's like, you have to draw a thousand drawings before you get one good one. And it's so true. Especially the shit nobody wants to do, like drawing feet. Like you, like Rob Liefeld just didn't even bother drawing feet. His legs would just like taper to nothing because he, he never forced himself. And, you know, he did fine, so whatever. But he never forced himself to do that because it's hard and frustrating, just like, you know, musicians that never force themselves to play like rudiments on drums or like for graphic design, I had to do all this, like these really tedious composition exercises oh, yeah. with like, so you know, four different lines and four different weights. And you have to make 60 different compositions with these. And I thought it was so stupid. And of course, 
now I completely recognize the value of it, but like forcing yourself to do the foundation, not just the fun stuff. Don't just draw the eyes because the eyes are the fun part, like draw the shoulders and the knees and the shit you that's frustrating and hard to draw. Oh, for sure. Like for years, it's like when I drew hair, I wanted it to be amazing and it just didn't fucking work for years. And I found shortcuts where I was like, okay, that's, that, that works enough that I'm happy with it. But you know, or I remember, oh God, this is a good example. I remember when everything was covered in blood in every fucking design (laughs) I did, you would look and you look, I, I, to this day, probably a huge chunk of anyone who's just drawing blood drips on a character, or even when you see the classic, like someone, like how many fucking artists at this point just are like, I did this cool piece of art and they just drew drips over hands and face on a photo. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, for one, it's like, like there's a place in time for just like badly drawn drips or whatever. But like, yeah, I had a moment where I was like, if I'm drawing, like say it's a character and he's got his forehead cut and there's blood going down his face. Well, in reality, that blood doesn't go whoop. You know, it goes down and through, you know, it'll go down. You have to understand the contour. Yeah. Like it'll pool in sections. It'll be thinner. And so I sat and basically looked at photos of blood faces and horror movies, whatever references I could find. I even, I remember even taking like photos of like my hand or my face and putting ink on or, or a watered down acrylic, because I was like, that's going to make a difference knowing those little things. Even if the version you do is a cartoonish version, that's just a little blip. If you understand the the contour of what you're representing, it's going to, it's going to show. Yeah. I don't know if it makes it better or worse, but like, you know, I look at my stuff now where I have, you know, elements of all those things that over the years I tried to elevate, I tried to get better at drawing. And, you know, like, I'm so happy with it. Like, there, there's so many drawings on my iPad right now that I haven't done anything with. I haven't even shown where, like, I literally just drew it because I just was like, I want to draw this. Like, even like my partner, she's phenomenal and too gorgeous for words, but also like such a character that I find myself so often just being like, I'm just going to draw her again. She's got cool tattoos and like this amazing face, like, you know, like everything's bold like she looks like my art on uh-huh. i don't know if that's a compliment or not but but i find myself in like even years past like i had a few friends who were just like such weird characters that like drawing them was just so fun yeah and it would help me because it's like you know the more i draw them the more i'd be like oh, i think i'm gonna try and get the nose more accurate but still my style or i'm gonna really try and do my style but like really make this eye have elements of like a real eye like you know putting in little lid lines or or Mm -hmm. knowing i remember the year i don't even know how it happened but i remember the year i went from like drawing an eye whatever goofy shape i did to drawing say i do like the weird goobly eye i do yeah well before i would do the goobly eye and i'd do a pupil in it and then there was a year where i was like ooh wait, there's an eyeball in there, like real life. So I'm going to draw, you know, the goobly, but then I'm going to draw where the eyeball would actually be. And then I was like, oh, wait, if I draw the lip and I still kept my style, but I was really so focused on like attempting to add like realistic elements or even like my, my little brother is just crazy good painter. Like it's obnoxious how good. 
And one of the things you, and I, I would just get mad at him early on when we would paint together. Cause I'd be painting and I'd just be doing my thing and painting my style. And he'd be like, no, the, the, the shadow has got to look like this. Like you can't have it. Like, and I was like, just shut the fuck up. I'm trying to fucking paint. But years later, I would look and I would see it as he evolved certain elements of his style as well. And I was like, you know what? You are right. Like maybe I should focus on, on adding more shadow into my stuff. Cause you look at stuff from 2008 and there's no shadow. Right. Right. <laughs> there's like, if it's a green face, there's a darker green, you know, right. That was just sort of arbitrary. Like, Oh, maybe a little darker line here. Yeah. Like under the hat brim. And that was about it, you know, but I wasn't, I just, I, I remember just, I didn't know how 2008 to like 2010. I just didn't get it. My head wasn't quite there as far as shadow went. And I had friends like, like God machine, Dan, Dan Mumford, uh, drew Millward who they got it. They were, they had crazy great styles that were all their own. And like, they were just, I'd look at theirs and I was like, they, they seem to get every fucking element of, of what they're doing. And then, well, I mean, but on the other hand, uh, you know, you're there's things you get that they didn't. Yeah. Cause they even God machine to the, like for so long and he was, he's huge. He was getting so much hype and he still gets hype. He found his, his market and he's just continuously killing it. And there was a bunch of times and I, I never know to this day if he was serious, but he would get asked in interviews who his favorite artist was. And he kept putting me and I was like, how, how, like, I know, I, I know his influences and his inspirations, but I guess sometimes when it's like, you know, your favorite artist isn't always necessarily someone you are inspired by artistically, maybe you just really like their work. Right. You know, but yeah, so those well, guys definitely the, pushed me. And I'm pretty The happy. idea that you touched on that I really like, which is again, something I hear a lot from musicians and, you know, people of, or, or jujitsu for that matter, is the idea of like deliberate practice. Like that oh, yeah. if you, yeah. you don't just, I mean, it, it's okay to sit down and just draw or sit down and just play guitar or, or just go roll some jujitsu. That's, that's fine. But that's more like fun than practice, you know, like to say, okay, I'm going to spend the next month getting better specifically at drawing toes or at, at doing knee bars or playing arpeggios. Like that kind of like focused practice to me is such an important idea. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I feel like for whatever reason, maybe because work's, you know, pandemic and work has been slow. I found myself not drawing quite as much as I, I usually, you know, would have like, I used to get up every morning and I put, you know, cartoons on and I I'd, I'd sit at my computer and, you know, I just sketch or draw something, you know, either for a buddy that I just do art for because I just like their projects. So I, I do that in the morning as like my practice but I'd always be drawing something like there was almost a day, a day didn't go by where I didn't draw, but I find like over the last like year, you know, with just other stuff and life stresses and things, I don't find myself drawing as much, but then when I do, yeah, I, I, I feel like when I, when I actually sit down and draw, it really is the practice part. Like I still enjoy it. Like that's the thing. I, was, I still end up taking some of my practice pieces that are just a hand and I'm like, oh man, like this, that hand turned out so good. I'm like, oh, okay. And I do like a whole, you know, I end up drawing yeah. a whole finished piece, but yeah, really like knowing what you're good at is great, but knowing what you're bad at and need work on is just, it's only going to do you, you better. And I think like, you can't really let it bum you out 
you can't be like, oh, I can't draw those things. It's like, you will. You'll yeah. get it. It might take years, to be honest. But like at some point, something's going to click. You're going to find some other artist that draws and you're going to be like, oh, I didn't even realize I could draw a hand in that way. Or I didn't even know like an eye. Oh, that makes so much more sense to me now. Right. But, you know, I had moments like that seeing another artist and they had such a different style. And I was just like, oh, okay. That everything. The, the light bulb moment. Yeah. It just makes And maybe so you have to try sense. 10 different. 10 different approaches and nine of them don't make sense. And then the 10th one is the light bulb moment. You're like, Oh yeah. Now I don't suck at drawing noses anymore. Yeah, exactly. You'll just have that. You will have that moment. It's, you know, like you said, even with, you know, I have tons of friends who are musicians. It's just, it's the same thing. You know, you're, you're going to be playing guitar and being like, I can't do sweeps. And then all of a sudden you hear it in the track and you're like, Oh, it's that simple. But right. Why did it take me four years for that? Yeah. And then you're just yeah. sweeping all over the place, you know? I'll let you go in a minute here. But for anybody who's interested, where can they find you? If someone's listening and they're a, you know, band or brand or someone else, uh, are are you looking for new clients? Where, where are you at with that? Oh, yeah. Whether I'm busy or, or work slow, I'm, I'm always taking on new clients. You might have to wait a few minutes <laughs> for me to finish stuff, but. You are extremely fucking fast, though. When you say wait a few minutes, like I don't want to <laughs> commit to anything, but like you, sometimes we've talked about something and you sent it to me like 40 minutes later and it was amazing. I'm like, what the fuck? You did that in half an hour. I won't lie. There's been a couple of times with clients where like I just like like just like we were saying, I get it. Like they tell me the idea. I'm like, but you got to sit on it for two days so they don't think you did it too fast. I've literally done that. I've sat on a design have to. for like a day and a half being like, well, I can't show them now. Like it looks <laughs> right. fucking phenomenal, but they're going to be like, it took you 20 minutes. Why do I have to pay you money? Well, yeah, because I've been doing this for 20 years. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, yeah. And I get it. I know what you wanted, but yeah, I'm always taking clients. I do more than goofy t-shirts like with that company Matar. I, I just posted a couple, but I did, a, I did a bunch of fabric design for them and it actually turned out pretty great. I actually did like a digital painting of like a, a fall forest winter forest and we did like a fall winter camo and they did a bunch of jackets and stuff it's pretty cool to see it in that you know finished way but uh yeah i'll do branding logos art album art fabric anything you really need if you if you like my style or you like my ideas and you feel like you have something you want me to take a crack at yeah, hit me up. Instagram's cool. probably still the easiest until that crashes forever and we get to a new one. Grimjob69 on Instagram. Yeah, still since day one. There we go. It's very bizarre to me, but yeah. Cool. Well, thanks again for making time for this and I uh, hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me, man. Good chat and uh, we'll do a part two down the road. Definitely. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. 
Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello out there. Yes, we're out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!